Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guests today are Patricia Lorsan and Todd Shepard, the editors of the volume French Mediterraneans, Transnational and Imperial Histories, and the book was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2016. Hi there, Patricia and Todd. Hi. Hello, hello, hello. I just want to thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, what a pleasure. It's a pleasure, yes. Why don't we begin by getting a little bit of background from both of you. So, Patricia, how did you come to work on France and its empire? Well, when I was at Columbia University and I took a course with the late Graham Irwin, who suggested that I should write a paper on the Bureau Arab, because I had no idea what to write about in Africa. And I was so intrigued by what I read, and I came across all this literature about the Cabils, and there was no, there was nothing in English about them at the time, so that got me going on uh, Africa, and really North Africa. I also grew up in the Middle East and North Africa, so mm-hmm. it was a double sort of whammy, so to speak. I was very interested to pursue that. And Todd? So I kind of decided to come to French history for bizarre reasons, uh, the way I came to it was through an, a, a paper that I did with Louise Tilly and Eric Hobsbawm uh, at the New School at the time. It was a course on revolutions, and I kind of ended up doing a paper on was the Algerian Revolution a French Revolution. Hmm. Uh, and it was at the time a tactic to get into a history program and get a PhD fellowship and then skip over to American history. <laughs> uh, and then I realized that this topic was really compelling. And that it, more important, it would also allow me to go to France to do research rather than travel the United States. So that was the premise. And then I, as I began to think about it in my first year at Rutgers University, where I ended up working with amazing people, uh, you among them, I would say, uh, <laughs> but also my advisors, Bonnie Smith and eventually Joan Scott uh, and others, uh, the question of you know, how does decolonization affect the former colonial powers uh, seemed to be really important, kind of shaped by post-colonial theory and other discussions. And this was in the early 90s when mm-hmm. I began. So that was really, I mean, 
the French Algerian question was what led me to French history and even history as a discipline, I would say. That's, I mean, Todd and I have known each other for a really long time, but I didn't know that story. I just want to ask you now both about the genesis of this collection. How did the two of you come to work together and specifically on this project? Patricia, do you want to start? Yes. At the University of Minnesota, we have a French Mediterranean collaborative. Hmm. And every year we have either a workshop or a conference. And in 2011, we had one on Mediterranean identities. And there were a lot of people that attended, a lot of scholars from all over the states and elsewhere. But the percentage of modernists was very small. Hmm. And one of the aims of this um, workshop or this conference was to produce books uh, as a result of of the people that participated. So um, Todd was a participator and, you know, there were only four, three other people. uh, And so I asked Todd if he'd like to co-edit with me and get other people involved so that we could produce a book uh, on sort of more modern period of the Mediterranean and some aspect of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And as it was identities, rather than choose the type of French identities in the Mediterranean, which seemed rather pedestrian, we settled on French Mediterraneans. And one of the themes, or many of the themes that the workshops over the years have dealt with are migration in addition to identities. This year we're doing violence. So it really arose out of that uh, workshop. Todd, maybe you could say a little bit about the experience of the workshop, what you recall from... 2011, it sounds like it was. Well, yes, but I think this is, is very accurate. I mean, I was excited to be invited, in particular by Patricia. I mean, Patricia's work, of course, mm-hmm. uh, Imperial Identities, uh, was such a foundational text for any of us thinking about France, uh, French history in the, 19th, in the 1990s, uh, and that, I mean, thinking at that period about the past. Uh, and then Patricia, in particular, had invited me to what had also been an absolutely crucial conference for me uh, previously. Uh, at Texas Tech that also resulted in a super volume. It was like the first conference I went to when I just started at the University of Oklahoma. So I was excited to see Patricia in her new home. It was not that new at the time, but still new to me uh, mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And it was such a great group of scholars that were there. And I have also just a really clear memory of Patricia You're suggesting we go out to this, what turned out to be a really great diner and <laughs> presenting this possibility and again, one of the things that that's, that I want to just reiterate that uh, Patricia had said is how we both. I mean, obviously, her first book uh, and my first book, uh, which was heavily and like much of the you know work that mattered to a lot of people in the that appeared in the 1990s or a little after, uh, was so fix so focused on questions of identity mm-hmm. uh, that we were both excited to kind of think about something different. Uh, and so I, the way that, I, and I'm quite sure it was Patricia who suggested this, uh, the French Mediterranean's framing, you know, immediately proved, I think, really generative to both of us as we began to talk about possibilities and then really seemed to capture a lot of great work. Uh, and again, to point out something that, again, Patricia already said, uh, part of what was exciting about the, the conference or the workshop that I was involved in uh, was this discussion with people working in all different chronological periods, uh, as well as an aspect that we really foregrounded, people coming at this from all different geographical training mm-hmm. and to be able to think this Mediterranean question or frame within, in the context of the late modern period, uh, the 19th and 20th century was immediately seemed compelling. 
I just want to ask you both some logistical questions. So you have a workshop. How did you get from the workshop to the group of scholars who are collected in this volume? Well, nearly all the scholars were not involved in the in the conference. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm a, a co-convener of this collaborative, but there's a, a medievalist, an early modernist, and me as the sort of modernist. And the vast majority of the people that were um, attracted to this to begin with were either early modern or medieval. So right. we felt it really, I felt it really important to get uh, much more focus on the modern period. Mm-hmm. So did you issue a call for contributors? And then I'm just wondering a bit about the the putting together of a collection, I guess. Well, I have a very good colleague here, Giancarlo Casale, uh, and he suggested the Ottomanists. Uh, and so we approached them and they, sound, they were very keen. Uh, and then there were just between Todd and I, we thought up a few of the other people that, um, uh, you know, scholars whose work we knew, uh, and invited them. Mm-hmm. Well, that was very much it. I mean, we immediately, I think, each had certain people that seemed obvious to us that are in the collection. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about Julia Clancy Smith. I'm thinking about Mary Dewhurst Lewis. I had just uh, kind of worked with Andrew Arsan. Uh, I think we were both, you know, obviously one of the people that, um, for French historians, matters in this moment is Ian Culler's work, uh, so you know, Arab mm-hmm. France. And then we just kind of began to reach out and to speak to other people. Sarah Stein was someone. Mm-hmm. And there were people that we wanted that couldn't participate, you know, that had other things to do. Sure. The framework that Patricia had suggested and that um, we both kind of immediately grabbed onto allowed us to think about it in interesting ways. And I think it was really lucky, but also increasingly something that we desired to kind of focus outside of people that we knew from within French history. So that was something that the kind of mm-hmm. rolling effect of, you know, let's talk to this person and maybe they can suggest somebody and then, you know, find something. But it was also something that came from Patricia's, you know, deep involvement as, as co-convener, uh, that she'd been really aware of all these different strands of discussions that are in other chronologically distinct areas of Mediterranean studies mm-hmm. so that the Ottoman period became obvious. One of the really interesting things that had arisen during the various workshops and collaboratives was the idea that the notion of the Mediterranean was, uh, as a sort of unit was mm-hmm. essentially a Western one. Uh, and, of course, there's some, this is something that's debated. A, a lot of historians of Islam and the Ottoman Empire don't see it like that. But this, mm-hmm. this is why we invited the sort of Ottomanist, because I thought this was uh, really interesting to see the way in which the Mediterranean was conceived in uh, other historical areas other than France or Europe. I just want to linger for a second on the plural of the title. The two of you describe the collection in the introduction as one that, and I'm quoting you here, reveals the significant French element in the 19th and 20th century making of a singular Mediterranean. So could we talk a little bit about this idea of pluralizing the Mediterranean and how that emblematizes the shift or the intervention that the collection is making? Well, very often when one thinks of the French Mediterranean, one looks at it very much from the perspective of France and Algeria or France and the Maghreb. Mm. So I think what was important to us was to go beyond that. And as Todd mentioned, Ian Collar's work was very important in rethinking the whole periphery of the Mediterranean in terms of 
French influence or what had influenced France as well, not just how France had influenced other areas. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how we sort of came upon it. Do you want to add to that, Todd? A little bit, yeah, just to, to, you know, extend the discussion uh, that you know, Patricia in the in the introduction did such a great job of mapping out for us this uh, expansive discussion about the Mediterranean uh, kind of anchored in Brodel and Goitan, you know, more recently revised. But, you know, one of the things that she was able to really make clear to me uh, is how the idea of the, the Mediterranean as a geological entity uh, was something that anchored these earlier discussions and the more recent revisions of them. Uh, you know, the Peregrine and such, they're, they're uh, uh, and now I'm forgetting the title of the the, the Savage Sea or something. Um, and how, one of the things that we're so foregrounding, of course, is the political, uh, mm. the political challenge that had inspired a lot of thinking about margins versus periphery, uh, the need to think multiplicity, so that in the modern period, of course, this idea of a unitary Mediterranean was something that was so you know, necessarily political and related to imperialism. I mean, I remember just, you know, we did, this is not something we put in uh, the introduction, but when I was first starting my work, I mean, I remember talking to an early modernist, just in reminding, he was reminding me of, hey, you know, Brodel theorized and wrote about the Mediterranean in the midst of what? In the midst of the Algerian War. Mm. Uh, you know, if you think about Anne Thompson's fundamental work uh, on colonial enlightenment, uh, one of the things that she made clear, you know, decades ago and that other people have, and I'm thinking of Gillian Weiss, for example, have made clear more recently is how the idea that the Mediterranean was connected was something that was widely perceived in Europe and in France uh, in the late 18th century. And then the idea that it's wholly a, it's a point of division uh, is this anchor for what, you know, Edward Said would identify in the 19th century version is an Orientalism, but that also explicitly, as Gillian Weiss and others have shown, you know, sets the stage for the invasion of Algeria as something wholly foreign. Uh, so this break and the idea of unity and break was something that had a real historical importance uh, and showed its political. So all of these things were things that we wanted to grapple with by pointing to the French Mediterraneans as multiple, mm -hmm. even as you know, in terms of French historians, uh, we really wanted to, as, as Patricia highlighted, to make clear that the Mediterraneans and this multiplicity were shaping France, were part of France, were all, also helped us break up what Frenchness was, what a thinking about identity might limit us to, that there's something coherent about France, even if we're challenging that, uh, that the Mediterraneans, and the ways that any, when any, any of these different versions could be in some ways French uh, was something that was really exciting to us. And again, one of the things that you see in the collection is different people using, some people are using the French language that be, there are French people, some people identify with France. There's all sorts of different ways that mm -hmm. Frenchness mattered too. So both of these things, dividing up the plurality of what histories of Frenchness or French, the French or French something could mean as well as insisting on the Mediterranean's, it, it matters and it's always back and forth between is it two, is it one? Multiple reminds us that there's more things going on. You also describe the collection as one that repositions modern French history as transnational and imperial history, one that responds to and contributes to the what we might call the colonial and transnational turns. So I guess I want to ask you both about this. One of the things you point to in the introduction is that prior to this collection and some other more recent work, that people working on empires from Europe have had a tendency to ignore existing work or neglect existing work of those in the peripheries, other types of habits. So in terms of the interventions that 
you see the collection making in the fields or in terms of the methodologies of transnational and imperial history. I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that. Patricia? Well, I, I think the, um, the articles that deal with the Ottoman and or the or sort of Middle East and the non-French territories, uh, non-French colonial territories, I think are very important in bringing that out, bringing that dimension out. Mm. What do you think, Todd? Well, I think that as the title suggests and as our original discussion suggests, you know, 2011, 2012, I mean, obviously, transnational had been a big theme since the late 1990s, early 2000s, but it increasingly also seemed like maybe an alternative to the colonial, to mm. the imperial, that if the imperial turn had kind of reached a, not an imp, had done its work, let's look elsewhere. Uh, and so one of the things I think we were, is working on this project really pointed out to us is that of course, we want to think about the transnational. Everything is not reducible to the colonial. And in particular, by not thinking about just the colonial, it does allow for, you know, as Patricia just emphasized, things coming from the Ottoman world, things coming from Morocco, from Jewish discussions between Morocco and what became Algeria, you know, that those things matter. But at the same time, we want to hold, you know, as, as the introduction also makes clear, I mean, the 19th and 20th centuries, those that we cover, you know, are deeply, deeply shaped by Western imperialism writ large. Uh, you know, Spencer Segala's piece really brings in U.S. imperialism, for example, and certainly French imperialism. So the risk of transnational aligning the imperial was one thing I thought we wanted to do, but at the same time, you know, really push this discomfort or this critique that people from other fields were suggesting of you know, the transnational, particularly from a U.S., uh, maybe not a North American, but a U.S. kind of point of view, uh, tended to be Americanist, kind of, we're going to do transnational history and just exporting themes outward uh, mm -hmm. into the rest of the world, into the Caribbean, into Europe, etc., without really grappling with the historiographies the discussions, the work that had been done by people there or people who were experts there. So that was another you know, big concern. And as Patricia said, I think having so many people, a majority of, of contributors who came from without France um, and without Europe, I mean, from outside of European histories, uh, mm -hmm. was really helpful in that. I think another important thing is that very often when one sees a transnational history, in fact, only about two or maybe three countries are involved. Mm. And I think that one of the really refreshing things about studying the Mediterranean is that there are so many different, I, I won't even say nations, but sort of ethnic groups and um, cultural and social backgrounds that create a really rich historiography. Mm -hmm. So I think this was really one of the important things was to show that it wasn't, you know, French transnationalism wasn't just... Uh, across the Mediterranean, but it was encompassing all the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I mean, it was unfortunate, really, that we weren't able to get, say, um, uh, an Italian historian who uh, also uh, could have contributed. But of course, I mean, we had 12. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, there's just so much you can take in, but perhaps the second volume. I want to ask a little bit about some of the other things that are 
specifically not in the volume and, and the decisions around not covering certain material or issues that have maybe been covered elsewhere or that are different from the project that you were both interested in. You note that this is not a collection about how non-French or and or colonized people refashioned France, that it's not reaching out from France and back in that way. And you also note that this is not a collection that deals uh, specifically with the question of French Orientalism or with the Berber question. So I just wanted to ask about those things and other things that you may have you know, made the decision to not cover in this volume. Maybe I could speak to that first. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that the introduction does obfuscate what a couple of, the, I mean, certainly some of the um, the articles, and I'm thinking about, for example, Ian Culler, uh, Ali Yesiloglu, really contribute directly to discussions of how France is framed and redefined from outside of France. Also, in the more recent period, uh, I think that uh, you know Mary Lewis's work here is in the book, uh, but also Spencer Segala's work. I mean, all mm-hmm. does that work too. So I think one of the things we were trying to do in the introduction is to position what we you know how we wanted people to enter into the book as a whole. So mm-hmm. and I think different authors obviously were still participating in that, but but it was a decision. Again, we made it. We didn't want it to be about French identity, uh, and therefore, since that frame was so weighted in it and so important and so important to our own previous work, um, I think that was one thing we wanted to have people focus on, some of the other key themes that were there. Mm-hmm. Patricia, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I just want to say that you know some of these articles, particularly the LDEM article, and it just shows the sorts of areas that many historians just overlook Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually are very important in creating the notion of the way in which France expanded and the way in which other countries responded to France. I was thinking of that, and I was also thinking uh, of the coinage, the aims. Mm-hmm. Yes, Mark Ames, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, again, I mean, it's fascinating if you think of these two articles that really deal with with very localized, well, at least the Ed Eldem one deals with very sort of localized influences and yet were really important influences. You mentioned, Patricia, the fact that you felt it was really important, well, that you both felt that it was really important to steer the conversation around Mediterranean's towards more of an emphasis on the modern period, that you had more early modern participants in the original workshop and that part of the aim of this collection is to is to emphasize the modern period. So I just wanted to ask a little bit about some of the thematic and methodological differences between the approach of early modernists, and I know that calls for some, some generalizations, uh, between the early modernists and the kinds of issues and thematics that become more salient in the work of historians dealing with the modern period. Well, I, I mean, I think that in the early modern, certainly medieval period, of course, there are no nation states. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, religion plays a very important role. Uh, I think more and more people today are looking at the sort of gender dimension. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, there's similarities. But migration and the way in which groups moved around, I think this is uh, one of the things that um, the early modernists emphasize. So I think that that creates uh, a different perspective. Do you want to add to that, Todd? Well, I think that, you know, the crucial historiographical dispute that is the introduction and Patricia really, uh, you know, brings to the fore um, was 
the non-unity of the Mediterranean from non-European perspectives. Again, you know, I think most of us can think back to the historiography around the so-called Duck Crusades, uh, you know, how for the so-called Islamic world, uh, most historians would argue now that this was not a thing, right? It was one of many, many conflicts on the outskirts, on the margins of mm-hmm. the caliphate, et cetera. Uh, that similarly, like the Mediterranean was one of the space, it was a frontier space, but one of many frontier spaces that was discussed and central to uh, the the Islamic world or Muslim thinkers, Muslim politics, et cetera. That's very different in the 19th century. Uh, so that that, mm-hmm. and if clearly that historiographical discussion is less, is, is not applicable. In the, in the 19th century, it's in the 20th century, the Mediterranean seems like a whole and a unity, and that unity has been, if anyone doesn't want it to be that way, European powers are enforcing it. I mean, again, we can think, as Patricia said earlier, uh, think about Italy, uh, and we can think about it in horrifying ways around the, you know, the invasion of the horrific massacres in Libya uh, mm-hmm. in the 19-teens and 20s, when Italy started to invade Libya. Mm-hmm. So this insistence that this was part of, uh, whether... Agadir, et cetera, et cetera. French Algeria, clearly uh, Egypt's protectorate status under the British uh, or con- you know, controlled by the British. So that, that discussion is really distinct. I mean, that, that this, what has become a big historiographical debate among early modernists, I don't think is. And that's one of the things that the book really maps out. Uh, so we're, our French Mediterranean is explicitly challenging what was a politically enforced unity at the time, uh, even as it's also drawing attention to the ways that claims about clear distinctions, you know, have geographical, I have, excuse me, chronological certainties and not simply geographical anchors. Mm-hmm. So from, you know, we talked about already the 18 teens, uh, when Ann Thompson and now Gillian Weiss have both really pointed us to these insistent claims that the North and the South of Mediterranean were wholly different and below was barbarism. Uh, and this needed to be conquered potentially, mm-hmm. and it was by the French, uh, to them, we think of the 1960s uh, and decolonization and how that you know inserts this division between North and South is something that may seem obvious. And again, you know, historiographically interesting because it's the very moment when people like Brodel or all these French politicians are trying to make the claim of unity. So th- that's one of, one of the big differences, I think, that was really, really mattered to us uh, that the, in this period, in part because of, in large part, because of empire and imperialism, uh, unity seems really clear. And then, as Patricia said before, uh, questions of nation state are very different. Uh, but questions of migration are then shaped by these differences, uh, the existence of nation. This is one of the things that I think Mary Lewis's article does so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the attention that we and others and the people in the volume paid to to migration, you know, it can seem from a modernist perspective that these are simply possible because of imperialism. We know that's not true. There's a much longer history. And again, Clancy, Julia Clancy Smith Smith has been really crucial for those of us in French history to think about this, again, modern French history. But empire does give real shape to migrations in ways that it perhaps didn't before. I, I think there's something that one needs to remember, that the Mediterranean has always been an imperial area, first mm-hmm. with the Romans, of course, and then with the Ottomans. And so there's always been a, a kickback against those empires in some way or another. And of course, as we progress into the modern period, the time frame shrinks, so to speak. I mean, it becomes much easier because of communications and because of the, the way people can travel. The time frame becomes much shorter mm-hmm. in the sort of conflicts between empire and non-empire and the transmission of ideas and migrations. I think that's something that one needs to bear in mind. I just want to follow up on 
I guess, the broad question of the periodization of the collection that runs from the late 18th century to decolonization. And I mean, there's some apparently obvious things about that, you know, emphasizing the modern period. But to go to decolonization, I wonder if either one of you have thoughts on where the collection ends uh, chronologically and whether that was a choice that had to do with who came together or whether it was a conceptual decision as well. Conceptually, it matters. I think that you know, we have these two amazing articles, or the Kubi article, mm-hmm. which is introducing, you know, is, it became a kind of touchstone for what's going to be very soon, I'm quite sure, uh, a new book. Uh, I think it'll come out next year. Mm-hmm. Spencer Segala's book uh, on natural disasters is also one that's about to come out that are really rethinking uh, the decolonization period in really interesting ways. And part of what they're foregrounding is how these certainties of difference uh, emerge and then also immediately get caught up in questions of, of power and imperialism, you know, questions of whether it's the United States, uh, whether it's forms of Western imaginaries, as, as Emma Kubi shows around uh, the Shoah and the Holocaust and shaping how people were able to think about uh, French uh, camps that were, you know, in which they were shoving all these Algerians. Uh, so that, that made a lot of sense to us, I think. that. But at the same time, though, the work that we found was so dense uh, in the 19th century uh, and we just got such great work that it made so much sense to kind of home in on that too but i the 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 work that we received as well and the stuff that we saw i think really convinced us that it was worth thinking about this decolonization moment as not an end point but a nice kind of a break point uh, Mm -hmm. chronologically and in terms of the coherence of the different pieces, uh, something that begins in the late 18th century uh, and takes a different shape, I think, perhaps uh, after the 1960s. But we, again, the second volume might include that discussion too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think one of the interesting things too is if, for example, one wanted to push the idea of the French Mediterranean after decolonization, we'd have to look much further than just the rim of the Mediterranean. Mm. I think we'd have to look uh, to the sort of southern shores and beyond. And the one article that does sort of hint at that is the article about the Mazab, because mm. that yes. is much, that's much lower down. Um, but the influences on the Mediterranean from sub-Saharan Africa were huge. Uh, and that's something that um, would be very interesting to consider, the sort of French influences because if you look today at the influence of France or the traces of France much more specific in sub-Saharan Africa than in uh, North Africa I'd say um, because Mm -hmm. of of the strong Islamic culture in North Africa whereas if you look at French West Africa the French the traces of France really lasted up until this present century Mm-hmm. And it's only most recently um, that you, you're getting a, a sort of dilution. The other thing I should say is that although nobody realizes at the time, I think after the um, decolonization period, you have the serious rise of the American empire. Mm. And, and, you know, whatever one might say is it's an empire that's not an empire, uh, or the empire without any clothes, or however one wants to describe it. The fact is, um, it is very much an empire. It's just an empire in a different form. Todd, did you want to? I mean, one of the things that we, you know, the Medi- Mediterranean studies and thinking about the Mediterranean obviously has been shaped by Atlantic world historiography. 
And one of the things that Atlantic world historians are, are finally beginning to grapple with explicitly uh, is how essentially this was a Cold War historiography, right? I mean, that it was about anchoring the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, mm -hmm. uh, anchoring these different – so here we might think of Turkey uh, as the hinterlands. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, but this very moment that, I mean, part of this other project, if we think of Brodel uh, and the fight to keep Algeria part of France, is a different vision of how the world could have been imagined. I mean, certainly the 60s and 70s, part of what made the Mediterranean exciting to people was they seemed secondary, marginal. Uh, the world was really now anchored, as we were told, the history of civilization, the West, etc., was anchored in the Atlantic world. Uh, so I think that you know, that periodization, too, is interesting. I mean, the, the historical period in which we stop the, the volume in the 1960s is also the historical period that the historiographical production uh, that marginalizes the Mediterranean and thus makes thinking about its wholeness via Brodel and others in Goitan so interesting. Uh, and then from our perspective, it becomes easier to see how that was something that happened historiographically. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think, again, from the from the Atlantic world historiography, uh, questions of hinterlands against Sarah Stein's uh, work as you know, on, on Trifus in the Mazab in the, in the Sahara mm -hmm. is where we really, there's an explicit grappling with that, but where we're trying to, we break really clearly from the Mediterranean as something that touches these different areas uh, and help us think differently with it. But again, more work needs to be done. Yeah, that's a very good point. I wanted to just ask a little bit more about the way that space runs throughout these essays, sometimes physical space, sometimes imaginary space, coast and interior. And of course, Sarah Stein's essay is making me think about that the most. I think there's another issue of uh, micro regions coming up. So, yeah, how you think about these essays intervening with respect to questions of space? Well, I think one of the important things that this volume contributes is it shows the very different types of space that are important in creating a notion of a French Mediterranean. Mm. Very often when you have histories, they're sort of focused on one particular type of space. Uh, but here I think what is important is that it's not only geographical, but it's also intellectual. Mm -hmm. Very much. And one of the ways that we tried to signal that, of course, was you know, that, this, that we are three sections of the book. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is about maps, you know, or position in terms of maps. The second one is position in terms of frameworks, uh, shifting frameworks of migration. Uh, and the third one in margins. Uh, yeah. So we, again, we wanted to really, you know, make explicit this idea that these Mediterraneans, these different ways of deploying, articulating, invoking French or France or what Frenchness is uh, that different people, different authors are using in this in this project. They were both things that actors at the time were using, and they were analytic categories. And the back mm -hmm. and forth, of course, is something that history as a discipline, you know, as an approach is particularly committed to constantly trying to think with actors categories, historical, you know, avoid anachronism, and at the same time, constantly needing to deploy frameworks, uh, whether it's narrative frameworks or analytic frameworks or theoretical frameworks, uh, to think that material and to make sense of it. I wonder if either one or both of you has more to say about the structure of the volume in, in, in these three parts that Todd has conveniently allowed me to segue into. This first part of the book uh, focused on rethinking Mediterranean maps, uh, maps to rethink the Mediterranean. The second part, shifting frameworks of migration or migrations across the Mediterranean. And the third part of the volume, margins remade, 
in parentheses by the Mediterranean. So it sounds like the question of space was really at work in thinking about these three parts and especially the naming of these three parts and the conceptualization. Were there other things that you all were thinking about as you divided up these essays or thought about how to organize them and structure the volume, Patricia? Well, I think the first thing, I mean, before we actually thought about the actual sections, we really wanted to think about who was contributing and what they were going to say. And it was mm-hmm. as a result of having agreed to get these various articles together. Uh, and when we looked at the brief summaries that they provided and their titles, we started to put them into these different categories. Mm-hmm. But then once we actually read the articles, again, um, you know, there were occasional shifts that we that we made. So I don't think, at least I can't remember that we sort of thought these particular groups right at the beginning. I mean, we had the idea of, of breaking the volume up into different sections, but you know, a lot of it depended on uh, the authors and, and how they were going to, you know, what they were going to produce. Todd? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm looking back at um, some of the earlier versions, we'd, you know, we'd lined up things about revolutions, conflicts, politics and policies, mm. migrations and displacements, Arab Jews, Kabyles, uh, when we had different, we, again, we had a different lineup at that point. Um, so I think we had a different set of questions. Uh, and the idea of really foregrounding Mediterraneans, the multiplicity uh, by foregrounding this question of the frame, uh, you know, use for the utility of it, the Mediterranean, this Mediterranean, which Mediterranean, when, uh, and how these this differ over time, differ for different historians, different scholars mm-hmm. looking back, just as it differed for different actors uh, when that, that are being studied, was the way that we kind of ended up putting forward to people to think through the different pieces, which means, you know, we didn't wholly rely on chronology. Again, Edom's book, uh, article, for example, uh, is in the second section, even though chronologically it would have gone, you know, right with uh, Ian Cullors, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, Salugu's um, piece. So, but again, as, as Patricia said, like most historians, we kind of winnowed through the evidence that we had once we had <laughs> the actual articles uh, and began to draw, draw the themes that were actually in there uh, and then highlighted those we thought were most important to kind of foreground for everybody, but then organize them in ways that would make sense together. Am I right that all of the authors in the collection are trained as or working as historians? Uh, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, not Europeanists. Um, no, not Europeanists, but I just mean in terms of, I guess I'm nudging towards a question about disciplinary uh, methodological differences yes. and unity and what it means to have a collection of historians, whether there were other possibilities or, um, yeah, the question of interdisciplinarity, either including or not including non-historians, but within the work that these historians are doing, whether, you know, they might all be historians, but working differently methodologically. Yeah, I think that's really important because whether you're an an Ottomanist or whether you're studying Jewish history or French history or North African history, there are different issues and different themes and concepts Mm -hmm. that are important at a particular moment. And I think that was really one of the things that I particularly found really interesting in these different historians because their interests and the concepts that they used uh, were not unique, obviously, but mm. their preoccupations mirrored the sort of preoccupations of the moment at which they were writing. And I think that was an interesting, I found a very interesting dimension of this of this book. Todd? 
No, I think both, you know, both Patricia and I and our work, um, you know, have been very, I'm thinking of Patricia's recent book, uh, which really draws from literary theory uh, and the work of literary critics, as well as, you know, deeply informed as a historian in historical work and archival work, et cetera. Uh, and I, too, have always been interested in these kind of interdisciplinary engagements. Mm-hmm. But with this project, uh, you know, one of the things that was really important to us was to home in on, again, these big discussions, Mediterranean's imperial history, the imperial turn, the transna- transnational histories, the transnational turn, uh, and kind of bring them together to foreground some of the things that they hid from view, mm-hmm. some of the possibilities that they opened up. And one of those possibilities is to create dialogue. Again, one of the concerns uh, is the imperialism of one discipline insisting that its approaches dominate all others or historians based in North America uh, who work on North American topics dominate or historians who do most importantly European and North American histories dominate other discussions. So really to be able to draw those things together was really useful. And one of the things that we, one of the keystone or, you know, touchstones at the end of the introduction is the question of sources. Uh, That Mm -hmm. is to say there's something particular about the ways historians work that we do recognize in each other. Uh, You know, like Roxanne, I worked with Bonnie Smith, uh, who's done amazing work on Mm -hmm. helping us think about historical methodology, how the kind of methods the, the acts that historians do rather than simply the ideals of objectivity or something. And the idea of primary source research is one of those. Uh, and so it was really exciting to us to bring together these historians trained in different national schools, but historians who also were focused on really different methodologies. Uh, mm-hmm. And so Adam's work, Yossi Oglo's work, uh, really Ames's work. I mean, these are people that are just doing much, much different like historic, historical approaches with focused on different types of evidence than many of the discussions or the historiographical uh, approaches that have dominated recent modern French history. Uh, You emphasize historians and their use of different sources and archival material in the collection, and signal in particular the use of legal sources. I don't know if you'd call that a legal turn in this field, but do either one of you want to say more about that, Patricia? Um, Well, certainly more and more um, historians are looking at the legal aspect of um, imperialism and colonialism. Um, and so, um, yes, I think that is that is important. Mm-hmm. But sort of legal pluralism, you know, for historians of empire uh, from, I think, Lauren Benton is one of the touchstones here, uh, her work, but many other scholars have been using that again. Lewis uh, and Stein each really delve into that here. Uh, forum shopping, uh, you know, these have been big discussions. There's also another strand of that turn to the legal uh, kind of in some ways post-Foucaultian approaches, uh, you know, using uh, Foucaultian analyses or at least frames, uh, mm-hmm. but focused on evidence that was not, it was explicitly excluded by Michel Foucault and his own kind of philosophical historical work. Uh, so the law, those types of institutions. So it's been a useful, it's been useful for different scholars, different historians in particular, in different ways in the last couple of decades, I think. And so we were trying to bring mm-hmm. together different scholars who do different, th- different historians who do different things with the legal. Speaking of difference, I have kind of a grab bag question I hate to pull all these things into one place, but I will, about the ways that the different essays, and you can feel free, both of you, to reference whichever essays come to mind, engage questions of religious difference, uh, ethnic or racial difference, economic class differences, gender. Well, I have to say, I didn't actually think about that at the outset, but of Mm. course, this is 
an underlying theme that's very important in, in any uh, history of empire or uh, connections between two different areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole role of religion in the Mediterranean has been so vital across the ages. I mean, it's not anything new today, as has ethnicity. I mean, the whole, particularly for the French, this notion of culture and cultural difference. So I do think that some of these articles bring that out, Mm -hmm. particularly the articles in the margins remade, I think, uh, are important in showing the sort of ways in which different religious or ethnic or cultural ideas or frameworks oscillate together or complement each other or repel each other. Mm -hmm. I think all the articles touch on it in some way or another. You can't consider the Mediterranean without considering all these differences and the way in which they work together or against each other. Todd? You want to think, I mean, so from the first couple essays, uh, Yesioglu and Collar's essay, both of them are using, I mean, Yesioglu actually more explicitly uh, the concept of East of Enlightenment that Ian Collar uh, had discussed to really extend their idea of the age of enlightenment is one that included Muslim lands, Muslim actors, uh, people mm-hmm. explicitly thinking with enlightenment, Republic of Letters, discussions, sources, forms of the new forms of deploying evidence to kind of comment on society and make claims uh, in a Muslim context in reference to Islam, as well as in reference to European discussions writ large or Mediterranean discussions writ large. But then we also see more particularly, that is something that doesn't have to be subsumed or, you know, is not simply part of a larger European history. Uh, I think the work that, you know, Susan Miller's tracing out uh, in the case of Moïse Nahon, uh, mm-hmm. both the persistence of Jewish networks uh, that cross the Moroccan-Algerian frontier uh, that kind of work within. However, increasingly, this is what you know Susan so effectively shows, I think, uh, among other things, uh, is how this Jewish set of thinkers that of which Naon is an exceptional example, really takes advantage of new possibilities that are made available through the extension of French empire to create new connections that still are feeding back into contributing to intra-Jewish discussions that are still at this point deeply embedded in Jewish-Muslim discussions. So there's that. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like one of Mary Lewis's great work here in thinking about the disappearance or the kind of challenge to forum shopping to get back to the legal is how the French in their establishment or their affirmation of their unique protectorate status over Tunisia want to break down the possibilities for Europeans to take advantage of their particular, that is Italians or Poles or Brits, Mm -hmm. uh, to take advantage of particular legal uh, arrangements between their so-called home country uh, and Tunisia uh, and get subsumed into French, that is all the so-called Christians are all under one. How difficult it is to push then all the Muslims, uh, notably the Algerian Muslims, to try to play on the French their French status, their nationality, even as they're being pushed to kind of align with Tunisians, but then can be an advantage for Libyans, people living in what becomes Libya, who can mm-hmm. play on this status. Um, so that, again, the breaking down that, unlike what Kaller, Yesioglu, and and, and Miller have shown, and other people are showing in the collection, you know, trying to assert that there's a real distinction between Islam and the Christian world. Uh, and again, the Jewish historians uh, with Sarah Stein's work on the, how the Dreyfus Affair works uh, very differently to break and try to break Jews off of that. You know, complicate this, but that's really interesting. I think it's one of the really interesting stories is how this is a space of great exchange of intersections where the particularity of religious groupings and discussions 
is real, but the interconnections between literally the three big religions uh, is also really, really present Mm -hmm. and how hard people are working to divide them up. You've both hinted at another volume. Is that in the works or a plan? (laughs) Uh, Well, it might be. It might be after this interview. No, it's not in the works. Um, okay, so at a couple of moments, the ideas for what could be in that next step uh, have come up. And I just wonder whether or not, I, I'm not going to make you commit to doing a second volume during this interview, but <laughs> if you could imagine where this project or field or set of questions needs to go next, whether or not you're both responsible for that, uh, where do you see things going Well, I think some of these issues that have been raised in this particular volume have been developed. Uh, uh, Pascal Fugès, for example, has just written a book on um, the revolution in the Ottoman world, uh, and it's a diplomatic history, so it's an interesting difference because he also traces the results during the, the French Republic and the way in which French nationals in the Levant reacted. So I think that one wouldn't want to just sort of make a second volume as a chronological extension, but would want to redevelop mm-hmm. uh, or in as they say, um, some of these themes uh, in, a, in another volume. But I, I, mean, I don't actually see that happening right away. <laughs> Todd? I mean, I think that there's been some great responses already. Um, and so two of them, I think, you know, Joshua Schreier uh, did a great review or, you know, a really generous review in Journal of Modern History mm-hmm. uh, that I think really opened up some possibilities for thinking, but also Patrick Bouchon. Uh, so let's reference our French colleagues. Um, and Patrick Bouchon, of course, at the Collège de France now and his Histoire mondiale de la France, which inspired such enormous controversy, uh, public, historiographical to a certain extent too, but certainly public in France. Um mm-hmm. You know, and in a recent piece that he co-published, uh, he explicitly cited our you know book along with other American discussions as ones that should really be models for the ways that French historians should think and that they're trying to think too. So I think mm-hmm. that this you know one of the things that was exciting about the volume was bringing in different historiographical discussions. I mean, Mark Ames, uh, who is a French scholar based in France but is an Ottomanist, you know, was one of these people. And I think both Patricia and I have had this experience of, you know, people in in France from other disciplines besides history or certainly other uh, national histories besides French national history uh, who are French and trained in France uh, are people that have been excited by our work uh, and taken it up mm-hmm. uh, in ways that are, you know, notable. Uh, so, but I think that the, the discussion among French historians is also shifting. So that would be one, you know, potential way to go uh, – that's really pro- and I think one tendency that's happening that's really promising is that not only, again, in the United States discussion, the North American discussion, the continued importance of the transnational, but also still the imperial turn uh, as framing how people do so-called French history is ongoing. You know, so there, I mean, I think mm-hmm. the French Mediterranean's frame uh, is one. There's continued work on French Atlantic, uh, again, in the early modern period, most particularly into the late 18th, notably, uh, that might be something. But I think we're going to continue to see a lot of these discussions. I mean, here for, you know, some of you might say professional reasons, I mean, to get hired in this country. For many people, it seems necessary to engage with histories outside of France or that place France or French 
topics uh, into much broader frameworks. But that's also an intellectual concern. And that's, I think, we're refreshingly seeing from recent discussions among French historians in France itself. So I think mm-hmm. all of these you know, offer a lot of possibilities for people to take up some of the frames that we've pointed to. Uh, hopefully, the Mediterranean and French Mediterraneans will prove useful. And I think it, it seems to be. So usually at the end of these interviews, I ask a single author or a single editor what they are working on now or next. So I want to do that, whether it's because our listeners need to know or just selfishly, I want to know, Patricia, what are you working on? Well, um, I have two interests. The actual monograph I'm thinking about is about the Cold War art and politics and the way in which art and politics come together in transnational activism. Uh, and um, this also concerns the United States. It's a sort of triangular United States, France, and Algeria. But instead of looking at sort of a diplomatic dimension, it's looking at the art and politics and the way in which art is politicized or not. Uh, and I'm looking at the American communities in Paris and the way in which they responded to the Algerian war. Mm. Um, and that's not just the African-American, but also American artists that were there. That's a sort of monograph. The other thing I'm very interested in, and um, I'm trying to sort of get going in a sort of conference way, is nostalgia. Mm. Because I feel very strongly that nostalgia has been marginalized as a sort of wistful dimension of memory. Uh, and in fact, there are more historians, and of course, Svetlana Boyum was the first that sort mm-hmm. of pushed it in this direction. Um, but it's really become a very important political tool. Mm-hmm. And I think for that reason, um, and for sociological reasons, I don't think it should be marginalized by historians uh, in the way it has done. I think Mayer was the one that said that uh, nostalgia to memory is what kitches to art. Mm. And I don't agree with that at all. So mm. that, that's my mission. Well, that sounds very exciting. The other is I'm on the cross. Right. Well, Todd, I know you've just published a book and we're going to get to talk about it soon. Um, yeah. A, a great book, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> a great book. Sex, France, and Arab Men, uh, 1962 to 1979. Very, very, very attractive, very engaging type. Yes. So, but what's what's going on now, Todd, or next? Well, I think one thing I did want to note is that you know, in the book, um, we displaced Algeria and French Algeria uh, from the center of it. Uh, Most of the scholars working here are not working on Algerian topics. I mean, Sarah Stein and Emma Kubi. Uh, both really home in on Algeria, and again, mm-hmm. both of them put it in the context of their larger work, which is not Algerian-centric. But like Patricia, I'm continuing to work uh, primarily in the immediate uh, on a French-Algerian topic. So again, about social welfare policy during the Algerian Revolution, French efforts to use the claim that there was an Algerian problem that France confronted, but it wasn't colonialism since France was not a colonial power. Algeria was part of France, mm-hmm. uh, but it was French racism towards so-called Muslims. Uh, and so the the ways that they came up with this policy, I talk about it a little in The Invention of Decolonization, uh, my first book, uh, but I really delved into that uh, both in the FLN archives, which I had access to in Algiers, the uh, around the ways that the FLN 
both collected all sorts of information and kind of came up with all sorts of ways to respond to so what the French called integrationism. Mm-hmm. So this policy that the French claimed broke with both assimilationism and associationism uh, was something wholly new uh, that most historians kind of dismiss. And so my project really takes this seriously, in part following on what GPRA, the uh, provisional government of the, of the Algerian Republic's analysts uh, and kind of leaders thought. Uh, this was some really interesting stuff. Also, again, drawing from the transnational, uh, from UNESCO sources in particular, how the French drew these from kind of sociological and anthropological discussions in the post-war period. Uh, Notably, they kind of referenced Mexican models from the 1930s. So again, trying to trace out some of the ways that the French really, at this point, used Republican arguments, but to make claims about the possibility of identifying and recognizing racism. Mm-hmm. At fighting French racism as a real problem, that they did so, it turns out, through the adoption of really strict quota policies uh, with explicit definitions of who was a French Muslim citizen from Algeria, which was based on not Islam, but based on origins, uh, and that they did th- so through an analysis drawn from primarily American sociologists uh, who argued that you know discrimination was the key category in which states could address racism and that it could be done, therefore, by discrimination could be defined by measuring the effects and not focusing on causes. So it's really interesting in the French Republican story that we know so well. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Freder and, Ch- and Herrick Chapman's great introduction to race in France uh, of this idea that even to talk about racism is racist. Uh, you know, here again, we've seen this recently with the like, let's expunge the word race from the French Constitution. Uh, here, the idea was since you're focusing on the effects you don't have to challenge the fact that the French Republican administrators and lawmakers wanted to be anti-racist. You could focus on the facts, the measurable facts, at least, that they had been racist in their effects. So it's an interesting policy that particularly kind of disappeared from memory uh, that also directly shapes the ways that French social policy works today. It's the kind of French version of social citizenship uh, that we know a lot about in the British case, et cetera, uh, but that in this post-war effort to break away from class-based analyses and particularly to break away from a language of rights to talk about groups in need that the government could help, uh, solidarity, et cetera. Uh, Sung and Choi, uh, Amelia Lyons have both done really interesting mm. work uh, in this field. So that's the, the project that I'm hoping to finish soon. I've done tons of research and I'm hoping to move forward with that. And I've published a bunch. But then another piece that I published in IJMES a few years ago on what happens to French laïcité discussions. Again, laïcité, laïcité, but hopefully maybe not wholly Algerian centric uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s when no one really was talking about this. I mean, remember, this is the period, the, the Fifth French Republic, let's remind everyone, you know, funds Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this whole period when people think laïcité just is not a problem. And it it's causes great despair among people who really are for laïcité. It causes great despair among people who want France to be Catholic. But it kind of imposes itself as an evidence in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And it's one of those things that Again, the 80s marks a real break with that, whether it's the return to power uh, or the coming to power of the Socialist Party, uh, the Savary laws and their efforts to end funding private schools, or, of course, the veil effect, the veil affair within the background, of course, mm-hmm. a much larger story of the crisis of state socialism, the collapse of the Soviet model, uh, the crisis of the left of Marxism, etc. So, so that's, mm-hmm. that's another project that I'm trying to work on. Well, that all sounds like very exciting work, and I hope you'll both keep me posted. Um, I just want to thank you both so much for speaking with me about this volume and for putting it together. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Roxanne. It's a great podcast, and 
these were great yeah. questions and great discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much.